morning, if you have your Bible, now would be the best time to open it to the book of Romans. Today we're in chapter 4, and our text will be chapter 4, verse 9 through 25. The vacation's over, I'm back in a suit. <laughs> and uh, feeling much better. Thank you for your prayers and encouraging words. Um, they certainly lift my spirits, and uh, just appreciate how many of you have done that, and I'm grateful for that. So to more important matters, let's look at the book of Romans, chapter 4, um, beginning in verse 9. Now, in the flow of the argument, Paul sees that he needs to address the issue of circumcision, which was an in issue of controversy in the first century because there were many Jewish converts to Christianity, but they were not yet at a stage where they knew what to do with circumcision. And uh, that may sound really um, uh, sort of uh, obscure and kind of out of the matter, but it's, it's a core issue in this text, and we will talk about it quite a bit. Hear now the word of the Lord. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, if, or for if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told. So shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when, when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the word it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who was raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised again for our justification. This is God's word. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much for the text that we have before us this morning. We know that it is the inspired, inerrant, infallible word of God. 
and that when you speak, Lord, you speak to us primarily through your word. And so we ask this morning that you give us a heart that is responsive to your word and ears to hear what your spirit is saying to the church. And we will be sure to give you glory and honor and praise for everything that happens here that is in accordance with your will and you alone should receive glory for that. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Now, in the Apostle Paul's day, there were grave errors that continually danced around the truth in an effort to shroud it under a veil of false piety. One of the serious errors that Paul confronted early in his ministry was the relationship between justification and the Old Testament rite of circumcision. It dogged his steps almost everywhere you went. I suppose when Paul is writing this section of Galatians, he is doing so with a stinging reminder of what happened at Galatia and the churches he planted there. Uh, let me give you just a taste of how Paul begins this letter. Normally in an epistle, you would, not, you would uh, uh, first have a greeting, and then you would move into a prayer for the congregation. Then you would give thanks for what God has done there. Paul does none of that. Immediately in verse 6 of Galatians 1, Paul says, I am astonished you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. That not only happened in Galatia, it happens here and around the world every day. The gospel is something that we are called not only to declare, but also to protect the nature of the truth in the good news of the gospel. And the moment you tamper with the good news of the gospel, it no longer becomes grace. It becomes works, and that's the worst news you will ever hear. That is not good news. And so some of the Jewish believers... And there were, Paul went to Galatia earlier. He founded the gospel upon, I mean, the church upon the gospel that God had revealed to him. And Paul continues saying, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Anathema. Now, you know what that means, don't you? That means let them go to H-E double toothpicks, as my mother used to say. This is serious stuff. And Paul is incensed because Jewish interlopers and teachers had descended upon Galatia and started tinkering with the gospel Paul preached and essentially said this. Yes, Paul's gospel is wonderful as far as it goes. But in order to have full status before the face of God, you not only need the person and work of Jesus, but you need to become circumcised. And you need to submit yourself that everything circumcision represents. And so they came in teaching a Christ plus gospel. And a Christ plus gospel is no gospel at all. If you add anything, one iota, one scintilla, one moat, one uh, um, Hebrew, uh, what do they call, uh, they're called uh, jot and tittles, uh, small markings, so to say, to the gospel, you no longer have gospel. You no longer have good news. You no longer have grace. You have turned grace into works. And so anyone who has a Christ plus, this is, I, I won't, I cannot communicate to you at this moment how seriously we should be about this. Because the gospel is tampered with, and when the gospel is tampered with, the power of the gospel is lost, and the person falls right back into a pit of works righteousness that will never get them anywhere. And so Paul 
noted that there were grave errors and the false teachers failed to grasp two key elements regarding the place and function of circumcision. First, they failed to understand that circumcision was a sign and a seal of the Abrahamic covenant. Circumcision pointed to Abraham's future seed, that is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Now that Christ had come, circumcision was no longer required because the sign was fulfilled. Where, where was the sign of circumcision fulfilled? Sec circumcision is cutting off the foreskin. And upon the cross, Colossians tells us in chapter 2, verse 11, that when Christ died on the cross, he was circumcised for us. That is, he was cut off and removed from the presence of God. God turned his back on his son, and he was cut off. And so Christ has fulfilled everything that circumcision represented. Therefore, the sign of the new covenant is no longer the shedding of blood involved in circumcision to ratify the covenant, but rather baptism. Baptism has replaced circumcision as the sign and seal of faith by righteousness. And so all throughout Romans, and I'm back to Romans now, if you're wondering where I am. I'm back to Romans. Romans, and uh, one uh, wise theologian once said that Galatians is a ticked-off version of Romans because it's shorter and it's to the point. But do you see the apostle's heart here? He is so um, driven by the gospel and he want, he's painstakingly going through the process of explaining that you're missing something here. And so what he's going to say in verses 9 and following is Abraham was declared to be right with God before he was ever circumcised. That's what he's going to argue. Therefore circumcision had nothing to do with the righteousness that Abraham possessed through faith. And that word logizdomai in the Greek, which is translated credited, translated uh, imputed, all of those times. It's used like 15 times in this chapter. And what it means is, is that God declared Abraham to be right with him forever and under his favor. God worded that. Logizomai has the word logos in it. Logos means word. And so logizomai not only means credited to one's account, but it also means to word something into reality and being. You remember how God, in the original creation account, spoke to nothing, and out of nothing, ex nihilo, God brought forth creation. No pre-existent materials, nothing. There was nothing. God spoke, and the world came to be. And so when God declared Abraham righteous, it was not upon the basis of him undergoing any kind of process of becoming holy or undergoing any... He wasn't circumcised until 29 years after he was declared righteous. 29 years after. Abraham's an interesting story. That's why Paul brings him up, because he's trying to address these Judaizers who are dogging him constantly about the place of circumcision. He's going to clarify that in this text. And so let's move on with what his argument is. In verse 9, Paul is still thinking of the blessedness of forgiveness in verses 7 and 8 as he returns to dis the discussion of what Abraham discovered in the matter. It is only for the circumcised or is it also for the uncircumcised? That is righteousness by faith. And by the way, I have to keep reminding you of this. What is righteousness by faith? Faith is looking outside of yourself and abandoning all strategies of trying to use your works, your goodness, your attempts at coming to church. You're trying to be a good person. You're trying to live an upright life. You're trying to be a great mom, great dad, good family man, a good responsible employee. None of those things matter. 
Faith is abandoning everything you would ever use to recommend yourself to God's presence, to put him in debt to you, to get him obligated to you, to make him required to pay you back what you owe him or what he owes you because of your obedience, but rather faith is a negation of all of that. And it is extending by God's grace an empty hand and receiving the record and righteousness of another. Luther called it an alien righteousness, a righteousness outside of us, a righteousness achieved and performed and completed by someone else, not us. So when you savingly believe the good news of the gospel and the person of work of Christ, who he is and what he's done to save us, once you trust that, you transfer your reliance away from everything you think you have to offer and totally bankrupt in yourself, extend the empty hand of faith to receive a validating performance record that belongs to Jesus who kept the law on our behalf and suffered and died the curses of breaking the law on our behalf. His blood, his righteousness, now his righteousness, his relationship with the Father as the mediator now gives me a relationship where I stand forever under his favor and there is nothing ever to be added to that. Nothing ever. Why would you even want to try? Have you ever even looked at Jesus? Have you looked at his life? Have you studied his life and the way that he lived? And the perfect zeal for his father, his perfect obedience, his sterling character. No one could point out sin in him. He was rejected by men. He was uh, rejected by all his own people, uh, the religious uh, elite of his day. And, but he himself was completely pure and righteous. And so the good news, the good news, good news, is not that I do anything. It's that Jesus has done everything, and I turn to him and receive it. And you say, Pastor, that's too simple. It is the hardest thing for you to ever do. You can't do it in your own strength and in your own power because we are self-justifiers. We are born natural, self-righteous people. And we want to boast in our salvation. And in chapter 3 and chapter 4, Paul has been undermining every attempt we could ever bring to the table to boast in the reason that I'm a Christian. And the only boast you have is in the glory of the cross, Paul tells us later in the book of Galatians. And so Paul is trying to put circumcision and relativize it because it's been fulfilled in its place. And so he goes on. He says the view he appears to be countering is that which suggests that Abraham's faith included circumcision. The Jews saw circumcision as a sign of membership in the Jewish nation. It was a religious and cultural symbol of belonging and identity to God and solidarity with the Hebrew people. So if Abraham's righteousness was credited after he was circumcised, then it could be argued that Abraham discovered that he there was an act of circumcision on which his righteousness was based and or the righteousness was available only to the Jews, God's ancient people. But in fact, it was not after but before, 29 years before. Abraham was already credited as righteous in Genesis 15:6, though he didn't get circumcised until Genesis 17. Circumcision was not a condition of him being reckoned as righteousness. It was a sign and a seal of what was already his by faith alone. That's what verse 11 says in chapter 4. It was the physical sign of spiritual reality... And that reality did not rely on bearing the sign. So Paul reasons in verses 11 and 12, if Abraham was saved by faith without circumcision, 
then uncircumcised non-Jewish people will also be saved by that same faith without circumcision. The chronology of Abraham's life is embodied proof that the principle Paul is setting forth in chapter 3, 29 to 30, that God is the God of the Jew and the Gentile and justifies both on the same grounds through the same faith. So there's ever only been one way of salvation. The Old Testament saints were not saved by keeping the law and offering the sacrifices and somehow that was enough. No. They were saved as Abraham was saved by trusting in the promise of an heir who would come and save his people from their sins by being an atonement, a sacrifice, a propitiation for their sins. And so in chapter 4, verses 13 through 17, Paul again contrasts these same two models of faith. If it was not through the law, not through obedience, that Abraham was given the promise, he would be the heir of the world. Or how could it be? The law was given by God to Moses 500 years after Abraham lived and was saved. Did you hear that? The law of God given to Moses on Mount Sinai occurred 500 years after Abraham, the patriarch, had been declared and credited righteousness through faith. And so Paul is making a compelling case here on the priority of grace and the priority of declared righteousness. So, Abraham lived and he was saved. He could have not obeyed the Mosaic law since it had not yet come into being. So how was he saved? Through the promise of God. In fact, the law can never be a route to anyone's salvation. If those who live by law are heirs, faith has no value and the promise is worthless. Because the law brings wrath. Well, what does that mean? If you live by law, you cannot receive what's promised because you're trusting in your wages rather than in receiving the gift. If the promise rests on any other kind of law keeping, it is useless because no one keeps the law as Paul has already shown at length back in chapter 2 and 3. The law can only show us where we fall short. which is likely what Paul is saying in the strange phrase in the end of chapter 4, verse 15, where there is no law, there is no transgression. Paul is not saying that if someone does not know the law, they can't be guilty of any sin, but transgression uh, carries the meaning of deliberately knowing and contravening and crossing of a boundary. It is a trespass on, it's like a trespass on private property. I am guilty of trespassing. There are boundaries established. When I was a little boy, I went hunting with my father. And I can remember it like it was yesterday. It was sort of a rainy day. It was in the fall. It was pretty chilly. And I had my trusty 410 shotgun, which I guess is terrible to say in this world now, but that's what I had. And I was a very young kid, and I remember walking up and I saw this red and black sign, and on it said, no trespassing, and it was on a fence. Well, of course, I was a little kid, I didn't know. I said, Dad, what does that mean? And he put it succinctly. He said, if you crawl over that fence, that man who lives right over there is going to shoot you. That's what it means. <laughs> I said, okay, I won't be doing that then. But transgressions or trespasses are crossing a boundary God has established as a boundary for our lives. I often see the law with this visual in my head. Have you ever written down a mountain and you're going down or up the mountain, but especially down? You look on one side, there's mountain. On the other side, there's nothing, right? 
And so you're tooling down the road, and you take a look to the right, and you go, boy, I better not make a mistake, because if I do, if I cross this boundary, we're done. And so I love the places where they built, you know, barriers to keep you from doing that. And they had to in certain places because so many people were killed by reckless driving too fast down a mountain. And so the law is like boundaries. You ever bowled and used the kiddie lane that has the bumpers so you can't throw a gutter ball? I know you have. Even though you're looking at me like, no, I've never done that, Pastor Tim. That's what the law is. It's a boundary to protect you and me from destroying ourselves. And so... Paul says, if I trespass on private property, then I'm guilty of trespassing. But if I see a sign saying private property, keep out, then I am a transgressor if I trespass. I know the law explicitly and broke it. Knowing the law does not make me an heir. It makes me doubly guilty. Therefore, the promise comes and can only come by faith so that it may be by grace, verse 16. Because saving faith is trusting the promises of God, salvation comes to us guaranteed since it relies on God's promise and not our obedience. And it is equally available to the Jew. Those who are of the law and non-Jews, those who are only of the faith of Abraham. As in verse 3, Paul shows that his argument is proven by Old Testament Scripture. God promised to make Abraham a father of many nations. In Genesis 17, verse 51. And so, he is our father of the faith and in the faith, and he now has children throughout the world because salvation comes by seeing and reacting by faith. And so, let's move to point number two. Now Paul begins to talk about Abraham as sort of a model or case study of faith. And how is that so? Paul concludes his consideration of Abraham in Romans 4, verses 17b through 25, by presenting him as a model of real living faith for us to follow as his children. What does it mean for us to believe God? Abraham shows us that it is to do three things. Number one, to know that reality is greater than how we feel or how things appear to us from our own vantage point. Faith is different from how reality appears to us, rather how we feel about it or how we understand it or how we see it. Well, what does that mean? He faced the fact, Abraham did, that his body was as good as dead. Can you imagine being a hundred years old and being told that you were going to be the father of a promised heir and son. The fact that his body was as good as dead, verse 19 says, God has promised him descendants more than the grains of sand on the sea, more than the stars in the sky. God had promised him descendants, yet he had none. He was about a hundred years old, and his wife Sarah was also dead in the womb. She was 90. Now, I haven't seen too many 190-year-old women have children. I don't think I've ever seen that. Probably somebody has somewhere, some way, but not in my knowledge. But it was an obstacle. So Sarah's womb was dead. Elsewhere, Paul says, we live by faith and not by sight. In 2 Corinthians 5, 7, faith is not the opposite to reason, but it is sometimes opposed to feelings and appearances. 
We are so, especially in our, our culture, in our world today, in the uh, postmodern context in which we find ourselves living, everything today is about feelings. There used to never be a question asked in an interview about how do you feel about this. Now that's the leading question. Nobody's concerned with the substance or content of anything. It's just rather how you feel about it. And feelings at times can be irrelevant. And in Abram, Abraham's case, or he was Abram at the time, before he had a child, his feelings were absolute despair and a sense of hopelessness and a sense of frustration. And probably he had just resigned himself to being a person who could never receive that kind of promise. He looked at his body and it looked hopeless. But he didn't go on appearances. This shows us that faith is not simply an optimism about life in general, nor is it faith in oneself, nor is it faith in faith. It is the opposite. Faith begins with a kind of death to self-trust. Faith is going on something despite our weaknesses and despite our feelings and perceptions. Some of you are going through very difficult suffering right now. Some of you are going through hardships. Some of your lives at this present moment look like anything but than what Jesus promised, uh, come to me and I'll give you an abundant life. You shall have an abundant life. And you're looking at that promise and you're saying to yourself, my life is anything but abundant. I'm weak. I'm under pressure constantly. I'm stressed out. My life is falling apart. My family's falling apart. Everything's falling apart. How can I trust God when I can't see the reality? Well, that's what faith is. Faith is the substance of things hoped for and the reality of things unseen. And it was used in Hebrews 11 in reference to Abraham. Faith begins with a kind of death to trusting in yourself. Faith is going on something despite our weakness, despite our feelings, despite how we perceive things to be. To focus, number two, not only do we learn to believe God, but Abraham shows us three things. And the second is to focus on facts about God despite the apparent impossibility of the promises he has made being kept. Abraham gave glory to God being fully persuaded that God had power, Romans 4, 20 to 21. This shows us that faith is not the ab absence of thinking, but rather a profound insistence on acting out of measured reflection instead of just reacting to circumstances. This man persevered in faith for a long time with no reality to show for it. Abraham pondered and considered the power of God. He believed that the God who had promised him a child was the God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. We can imagine him reasoning it out. If there is a creator God at all, and I know that there is, he must have all power, and there can be no limit to the power that he has. God knows Sarah and I are both old. He knows her womb is dead, and I'm an old, old man. He's the one who hung the sun and the moon in the sky and scattered the stars like sand with both hands. It is ridiculous for me to think our present, our age presents such a being with uh, an obstacle. Faith is thinking about God. Faith is focusing on the facts about Him. You know, one of the things that causes us to worry and to fret and to fear is we start reasoning from where we are and what we have and the resources we have and how we're going to cope and how we're going to manage this and how we're going to fix all the people in our lives who really need to be fixed. <laughs> you know, somebody else thinks you're like that, too. Have you ever been there? This is one of the reasons you need to spend time daily in God's Word. You need a perspective adjustment. You need to train the truth of God in upon your situation. You need to know how to look at your life through the lenses of God's Word. 
and that will deliver you and save you from much pacing the floor and fretting. I'm not going to tell you the fear will go completely away, but you'll see hope born and rise within you. And so when you focus on who God has revealed himself to be, that's why it's so important to know about the Trinity, to know about the attributes of God, to understand his nature, to understand who he is. And that will give you depth. It'll be tested. It'll be difficult. But you know that God can't lie. He must fulfill his promises. You know that God never changes. He doesn't mutate. He's immutable. You know that God has the power of being within himself. He's not dependent upon or contingent to or connected with anything outside of himself. He is who he is, and he's God, and he's sufficient for any situation. And so you've got to turn away from your trust in yourself and how you can manage and trust God. This is all I'll tell you. I started out the ministry in my 20s, and I prayed every once in a while. In October, I will be 70. I pray all the time now. I pray all the time now. I hardly go through an hour without lifting up some sort of... Why? Because I have learned that I am weak. I'm not a strong person. And I am struggling. And I find it hard to deal with everything. But learning to have the faith that Abraham had is to build it upon the superstructure of how God has spoken and revealed himself to us. We, of course, have far more facts about God than Abraham did. Far greater demonstrations of his love and power. We know that God made Saren's barren womb a place of life. Abraham's waiting on it. We turn to Genesis 21, 1 through 2, and we see it. No problem for us, huh? And we know that supremely he raised his own son to life. We have far more to go on than Abraham as we consider who God is and what he's capable of. And so faith is to know that the reality is greater than how we feel or how it may appear to us. Faith is to focus on facts about God despite the apparent impossibility of the promises he has made to us. And finally, faith is to trust the bare word of God. Abraham believed that God had the power to do what he had promised. Believing God is not simply thinking about God, but trusting in his word. And indeed, it is taking God at his word even when there's nothing else to go on. When feelings, popular opinion, common sense seem to contradict his promise. It is to look at what God has said and let that define reality for you. J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God. First time I ever read that book, I was in my 20s, and I remember reading it, and I remember saying to myself, he said, the Bible is God's index of reality. When you read the Bible, you are coming face to face with God's interpretation of reality. Now, who are you going to believe, yours or his? Now, that all sounds well and good for Abraham, but what about me? I mean, I didn't, I didn't get a promise like he got. What about me? Abraham shows us the way to strengthen our faith. Get to know a lot more about God. Study, reflect, meditate. Abraham was able to overcome his sense of weakness by reasoning on, the, on things on the basis of what he knew about God. You need to do the same. Secondly, act on God's promises and word even when it's hard. Faith is living as if these promises are true. For example, let's say that you generously give away your money, though that may appear economically risky because of his promise to care for the generous giver in Malachi. You tell the truth even though it may cost you a friend or favor with a particular circle because you know it pleases God who is the Lord of history and who holds the hearts of all people in his hands. Abraham's life also reminds us of what real life faith looks like. Paul says that Abraham did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God. 
Yet, I'm not questioning what Paul's saying, but I said go back and read Genesis. A quick read of the account of his life in Genesis suggests that he did waver <laughs> all over the place. He questioned God about God's promise, Genesis 15. He lied about who Sarah was twice, not once, but twice to protect his own hide. He lied about who she was. More than that, he tried to bring God's promise of a child to fruition himself by sleeping with Sarah's maidservant, Hagar. Even though Sarah's, it was her idea. Sarah said, it ain't working, Abraham. <laughs> so here's what we need to do. We're going to help God out because God it must be busy with other people. He didn't have time to think about me. So let's bring Hagar, my maidservant, an Egyptian, and Abraham, you be with her, and she will conceive a child, and that will be our heir. Maybe that's what God meant the whole time. Let's do that. Well, Abraham did it. And the moment the child was born, Hagar looked at Sarah with contempt. And Sarah runs to Abraham and says, it's all your fault. Ever heard that before? Is that getting too close to some of you? It's all your fault, woman. Or sir, it's all your fault. So were they, per was Abraham perfect? No. Are you going to be perfect? No. But does God honor the weakness and the faith that you have? Yes. Everybody that God has in the hall of fame in, in, the, in the Hebrew, uh, Hebrews chapter 11 record of the Old Testament, every one of them have glaring sins. But God never speaks of their sins. He doesn't speak of their weaknesses. He doesn't totalize them under that rubric, but rather calls them faithful. So that's what faith looks like. It's a struggle. It's supposed to be. It is real, and it's hard. Genesis does tell us that he did waver. Abraham did not always live out his faith. His obedience was not perfect. His trust fluctuated, but his faith was never extinguished. He hung on to God's promise, even in his own flaws and failings. And he did, as he did so, he was strengthened in his faith. And he was able to look at a mistake and say, this has reminded me that my only hope is to trust in God's promise and to trust in God to fulfill that promise. The life of faith is not the perfect life. It is the life which clings on to what God has said he will do and which sees struggle, joys, failures, a means of increasing our attachment to God who matters and keeps his promises. This is what faith looks like, which is the moment we put our trust in God's promises, we receive credited righteousness. And that same faith continues. Paul is teaching that these wonderful words in Genesis 15:6 were not written for him alone, but also for us to whom God will credit righteousness. So in Romans 4, 23 to 24, what does saving faith look like for us? To believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead and to trust God's promise that his son's death and resurrection was for our sins and for our justification. Abraham's faith was in the promise of a descendant. Our faith is in what God says one of his descendants has already achieved. This is the promise which is to define our reality and to shape our lives. Now in closing, whoa, you guys listen fast today. But I have uh, one, two, three, four, five, six closing points. Isn't that wonderful? In calling Abraham and David, as Paul has done in chapter 4, as witnesses, for his case, Paul has proven that justification by faith alone in Christ alone, through grace alone, began before circumcision and before the law was ever given. 
that it was continued to be, or has continued to be, and must always be a righteousness credited to those with saving faith. What is saving faith? I tried to tell you this last week, and I didn't do as good a job of it as I wanted to, so I'm going to tell you now. I told you about D. James Kennedy evangelism explosion and the questions that were often posed to people you share the gospel with, and the question was something like this. If you were to die tonight and go before God, and he was to say to you, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say? Another version of the question is, assuming for the moment that there really is a heaven, who do you think or what do you think are the general requirements for a mission? Who gets in? Who doesn't? Anyone who asks this question to a random sample of church-going people, church-going people, will be surprised at the large number of people who say, number one, or A, I've tried my best to be a good Christian. If that's why you should let me into heaven. I've tried my best to be a good person, a good Christian. Or, B, because I believe in him and try to do his will. Or C, because I believe in him with all my heart. This is not a trick question. It reveals common misconceptions about what it means to really believe. Answer A is salvation by works alone. Answer B is salvation by faith plus works. And answer C is salvation by faith as a work. And so in each case, the religious person has not stopped working and has not done a real trust transfer. In the last case, the person has even come to trust in his or her own trust. But each alternative misses the glorious release of the gospel. These false understandings of saving faith will lead to a person's insecurity, anxiety, a lack of assurance, a possession of spiritual pride, touchiness to criticism, and a devastation in light of any moral lapses. So this definition of faith cuts against both people who consider themselves to be church-going people and people who won't darken the door. On the outside, one seems to have faith and the other does not. But the religious person may be just as lost, having never confronted his or her own trust in self-justification. Saving faith is turning away from all that kind of nonsense. Now, let's conclude. In calling Abraham and David, Paul has proved that justification was before or prior to circumcision. And he's proved, Paul has shown several outworkings of being justified by faith which he will continue to do so in the next chapter. Now, by the way, next Sunday, I will preach on Romans 4, 23 and 24, because there's a lot more there than I'm having time to tell you today. But those who truly understand saving faith, those who look at the benefits of justification will know that there's absolutely no boasting. Our righteousness is credited, received, knowing that leads us to give glory to God and have a hopeful humility about ourselves. The minute you think you're better, you have departed from grace. No cowering. We know we're sinful. We know our sins are covered. We do not have our sins counted against us. Instead, we have the righteousness of Christ credited to us, and this produces the blessing of grateful joy and deep security. A great, awesome identity. We are included in the great plan of what God is doing in human history as children of Abraham through having the faith that he did. This produces a great purpose and an understanding of who we are and what we're doing in this world. It'll do more for your identity than anything else. Soren Kierkegaard, the Danish philosopher and somewhat theologian, somewhat better in some areas than others, once said something that was very true. He said, the essence of sin is your attempt to create an identity apart from God. Therefore, the essence of holiness is receiving the identity you have in Christ. Complete assurance, the promise of inheriting the earth, of enjoying eternal life in a renewed world is of grace and relies on God's promise-keeping, not our performances. I remember talking to my brother right before he died. 
my older brother, had a very rare form of blood cancer. It was called the von Hippel-Lidau syndrome. It only attacked uh, red-headed Jewish people. I don't look Jewish, do I? No, I'm not red-headed, but my brother was red-headed. And come to find out, my dad's mom was adopted in Germany and sent over here to live, and she was a red-headed Jewish woman. And so my brother had this rare form of blood tumors. It started in his eyes. It moved to his kidneys, up and down his spine, finally into his brain, and he died of kidney failure. And so the last time I remember leaning over to hug him, he said to me, I hadn't seen you in 25 years. He said, but I'm feeling you, and you're a lot bigger than you were the last time I saw you. I said, thanks for that. And I said to him in that moment, when you go to meet Jesus and when you get your new body, you will see again. He was totally blind, totally blind. You will walk again. You will dance again. You will fly. And he just grinned ear to ear. And about two weeks after that, he died. And I think, what a glorious <laughs> inheritance we have especially for those of us who have weaknesses and inabilities to accomplish basic things. The promise of inheriting the earth, of getting a new body, of living without fear of the future, or without despair at our failure. Hope where hope is gone. There was hope for Abraham and Sarah, or no hope except the hope God gave them and his promises, and they needed it. We have no hope of eternal life except that God has promised in Christ that we can be made righteousness, righteous. We can face the loss of things we enjoy and grieve when love is taken away, yet not lose our hope or feel that it isn't worth living. Anything taken away from you that causes you to say, I have no hope, your hope is in the wrong place and it's in the wrong thing. And the only thing you can have hope in that will never be taken away is the Lord Jesus Christ. You think about what we've said this morning. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you today for the example of someone like Abraham who was very human, who was very flawed, who yet at the same time held on with tenacity to all he had, which was your promise. Father, may you develop faith in us the same way. Faith, to me, seems to be such an important grace. And now, Father, may we give as people back to you a portion of that which you've entrusted to us because we trust that you will take care of us. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.